Good morning, Redeemer. I'm excited to open God's Word with you this morning. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 4? Psalm 4, and if you would keep your Bibles open, I'm going to try to draw your eyes back to the text as often as possible. We're continuing our summer in the Psalms, and we're going to be bouncing around a little. Last week, Brian preached on Psalm 97. We'll be in Psalm 4 this morning. Next week, Brian's going to go back to Psalm 98. And the following week, I'll be back in Psalm 5. And so in light of that movement, we need to orient ourselves to where Psalm 4 falls in the collection. Brian briefly touched on this last week, but Psalms 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the entire Psalter. They show us how the Psalms are to be read. Psalm 1 lays out the way of the righteous. And then Psalm 2 shows that the Psalms are to be read in light of all of history. Because in all of history, God reigns. He's in charge of history, and we're called to worship Him. Now, it's also important that we understand the overall theme of book one of the Psalms. Brian also touched last week on the fact that the Psalms are divided into five books. Book one is Psalms 1 through 41, and that's where we find ourselves this morning. And many commentators that are trying to give a theme to the first book of the Psalms will entitle it David's Conflict. Now, that's appropriate, and it helps us understand why these first few Psalms are placed here. Psalms 1 and 2 are an introduction. They tell us how to read the Psalms. And then Psalms 3, 4, and 5, they immediately jump into conflict. They're prayers offered in times of trouble. In Psalm 3, David is fleeing from Absalom. His son is trying to kill him. You then shift to Psalm 4. It's an evening prayer. It looks back on the day, a day that's filled with trouble. Then as you move to Psalm 5, it's a morning prayer. It looks forward to the day, a day that's going to be filled with trouble. In a sense, Psalms 4 and 5 offer us a rhythm for daily life. Not in some sort of legalistic or superstitious way where if you don't pray in the morning and evening, something bad's going to happen to you but they do offer a wise pattern to follow. You begin the day, you're preparing to face a hostile world. Go to the Lord in prayer. You end the day, you're trying to rest from a hostile world. Go to the Lord in prayer. Please pray with me before we read God's Word. Heavenly Father, we come to You in the name of Jesus. By Your Spirit, Would you turn our attention to your word? Enable us to rightly read it, to understand it, and apply it to our lives. Would you work through my sin and my weakness and enable me to speak truth clearly? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite pastors prepares his congregation for the reading of God's word by saying, these are the best words I have for you today. I think that's appropriate. So turn your attention to Psalm 4. These truly are the best words I have for you today. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? 
How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Amen. What's the smallest thing that can send you into a downward spiral? What I mean is, what's the most insignificant thing that can happen that completely changes your attitude or the way that you feel about life in the moment? Here's a few examples. Maybe you show up to work, you open the door of your car, and right as you open the door, it starts pouring rain, and you get soaked right before you walk into the office. Or kids, maybe you look and you see your brother or sister playing with one of your toys. Maybe it's a toy that you forgot existed but all of a sudden it really upsets you. Or perhaps someone takes a little bit too long to respond to a text message. Maybe it's even someone you want to go on a date with, and it sends you spiraling. Or you read a tweet or a Facebook post, and it just completely changes the way you feel in the moment. Maybe like me, if you get a spot of mud on your shoe or a scuff on your shoe, It drives you crazy. These relatively minor things happen, and we go from being generally happy and content to upset and despondent because of one simple thing. Now, why would I ask you that, and why would I ask you to think about that in light of Psalm 4? Well, I ask that question because it's what we experience at the beginning of the Psalms. One commentator notes that we see a clear view of the way of the righteous in Psalm 1. And then in Psalm 2, we see that the world will be given to the Messiah. But then the world seems to fall apart in Psalms 3 and 4. And it falls apart in more significant ways than what I just mentioned above. The things I just mentioned are minor inconveniences. But David's experiencing real trouble. Many theologians think the context of Psalm 4 is still that of Psalm 3. David's son is trying to kill him. Now, you might not have a family member trying to kill you. I hope not. But you still face trouble. You face difficulty. You face suffering because you live in a fallen world. So what is the response to this trouble in Psalm 4? What does David point us to at the end of a difficult day? At the heart of this psalm, David is telling us to remember who God is. Remember who God is. And David encourages us to remember who God is by demonstrating for us three things. How to pray in times of trouble. How to respond in times of trouble. And how to rest in times of trouble, how to pray, how to respond, and how to rest in times of trouble. 
Remember who God is. And first, David demonstrates how to do this by showing us how to pray in times of trouble. Now, the entire psalm is a prayer, but by itself, verse 1 contains a complete prayer. Look back with me at the text. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Where is the emphasis in this psalm? Is it primarily on David or is it on God? Does David focus on his problems first or does he focus on God? He focuses on who God is. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Who is God? He's the God of your righteousness. This is referring to the God who justifies The God who declares you righteous in Christ. That's really important. David's acknowledging the entire gospel message right here. He's reminding us who God is, and he's reminding us who we are. We're sinful. Completely sinful. On our own, we choose sin every time. Think about your own life for a second. Even if you've come to faith in Christ... Think about how often you still sin. We're all like Paul in Romans 7. He says, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Christians still sin. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to think about this too. I want you to look at your life and I want you to tell me if you're basically good. And I want you to be really honest with yourself. And then I want you to look at the world and tell me if people are basically good. I want you to look at all the atrocities and the war in Ukraine. Are people basically good? What about all the human rights violations in China? Are people basically good? Look at the once again record murders in the city of Jackson. Are people basically good? Think even in your own heart about how often you just think negative things about other people. Are you basically good? The answer to all those questions is no. We are dead in our trespasses and sin until we are made alive in Christ. Until we are justified. Until we're made right with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We are dead in sin. David reminds us of this at the beginning of this prayer. The focus is on God, the God of my righteousness, the God who justifies. We can't justify ourselves. Now, what else does David tell us to remember about God in verse 1? Look back at the text. He writes, you have given me relief when I was in distress. David remembers that God is a God who justifies, and he's a God who has given relief. He's a God who cares for people when they're in distress. The Hebrew here that's translated in distress more literally means in a tight corner or in a tight spot. God gives relief to his people when they're in tight spots. He's not absent in suffering. He's not disconnected when things go wrong. He's right there. More than that, he actually enters into the suffering He became man and went through worse than whatever we are currently going through. 
The writer of the letter of the Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus, the very Son of God, was tempted in every way that we are, but was without sin. Remember who God is. He justifies. He cares for you in trouble. But only after David is focused on who God is does he move on to his real request. Look at the end of verse 1. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David asks for God's grace only after he acknowledges who God is. Dale Ralph Davis is a wonderful commentator who used to teach at RTS Jackson. In commenting on this text, he says this, Biblical prayer seems to ponder God a good deal more than we are prone to do. Biblical prayer seems to ponder, to think about God a good deal more than we do. The prayers in the Bible, they dwell on God. They focus on God. So I ask this morning, what do our prayers tend to focus on? If you're anything like me, they focus on ourselves. They focus on our things. David is showing us how to pray even in trouble. He's telling us to remember who God is. And you don't have to go very far to find examples of our focus in prayer often being misplaced. Just think about the way that really, really young children pray. So if you're at the dinner table with your three or four-year-old and you ask them to pray, what you're likely going to get is prayers for what are right in front of them. That's how their brains work. So you're going to get, God, thank you for pizza. Thank you for chicken nuggets. Thank you for green beans. Thank you for apple juice. And there's something simple and beautiful to that. But as they get a little bit older, the prayers shift from just what they can see to something else. And it's often self. God, I pray for a bike. I pray for a new toy. I I pray that we can go to the beach. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we need to correct our children when those are their prayers. Those are real prayers. I'm not saying those are bad. They're genuine. They're true. But I use that to get you to think about your own prayers. How often are they self-focused? Or even if they're not self-focused, how often are they only prayers of supplication, only asking God for things? How often do our prayers really dwell on who God is? How often do your prayers remind you of God's grace, His mercy, His faithfulness, His steadfast love? At our house, we try to work with our daughters on the ACTS acronym to pray. Have you ever used that? ACTS, A-C-T-S. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. All four of those aspects are part of our prayers. Now, I confess that the part that is often the shortest for me is that first one. Adoration. That's just offering up praise to God, just praising Him for who He is and what He's done. If I'm honest, it's also typically the most stale for me. What I've come to realize, especially recently, is that I need to read the Psalms more. I need to let the Psalms frame my prayers more often. Even in my prayers, I need to remember who God is. Jesus does tell us to ask for what we need in Matthew 7. We should pray prayers of supplication daily for ourselves, for others, for the world. But we have to remember that we do that only in context of who God is. 
He's faithful. He's the one who justifies. David shows us how to pray, and he encourages us to remember who God is. Secondly, in verses 2 through 7, David shows us how to respond in times of trouble. And there are multiple groups that David responds to in these verses. Look at the first group here in verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The focus in this verse here is on David's enemies. Those who speak lies against David in an effort to turn his honor into shame, ultimately in an effort to remove him from the throne. But in, even in his response to these enemies, David is not dwelling on the nature of their offenses. He's not focusing too much on what they've done wrong. David just generally says they don't like his position, so they attack him through deception and lies. And then look at how he responds in verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. When David is attacked by slander and lies, his response is not to counterattack. His response is not to list all of his worldly accomplishments or credentials. His response is remembering who he belongs to. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Godly right there could easily be translated covenant one. The one that God is faithful to. The response to slander is not a counterattack. The response to slander is remembering Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, you cannot be condemned. It doesn't mean that you don't have to listen to criticism. It doesn't mean that you don't have to alter your behavior at times. But it does mean that slander cannot condemn you. It doesn't affect who you are at your core, even if it hurts in the moment. How do you respond to trouble? Remember who God is. And remember who you are in Christ. David then moves on to speak to another group. Those who are angry. Now, some commentators see these in verse 4 as the same enemies in verse 3, but I see a different group in view here. Look with me at verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. I think that these are actually David's allies. And they're angry about the lies and slander that David's just spoken of. So David tells them, be angry and do not sin. The verb translated be angry means literally to tremble or to shake. Now this could be tied to anger or fear, but in Ephesians 4.26, Paul clearly takes it as anger. So how can you be angry and not sin? Really, how is that possible that you could be angry and not sin? David ties it to silence. He ties being angry and not sinning to working through the emotion without exploding on others. Now, does that mean that anytime something upsets you, you have to keep it to yourself? No, that's not healthy. Does it mean if there are legal ways to respond to injustice that you don't use those? 
No, that's not what David has in view. He has in view anger that leads to some sort of personal outburst or personal revenge. And on top of that, he does encourage thoughtfulness in our response. We have to acknowledge in this text that David encourages silence. And that makes a lot of sense. Is our current culture struggling more with shouting every feeling that we have or with not saying enough? We know how to shout, even via social media. In fact, it's almost frowned upon if you don't shout at those who oppose you. But David encourages patience. And you have to remember here, David is the one being slandered. People are telling lies about him. They're trying to dethrone him, but he encourages patience. He encourages silence. And brothers and sisters, I know that can be incredibly difficult. But how often do you regret not sending an angry message versus how often do you regret sending something in anger? How do you respond to trouble? Patience. Often silence. David continues speaking to this group in verse 5, and he moves toward action. Look at the text. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now, to his original audience, David is talking about literal animal sacrifices, but he's still addressing us. Because we see in Romans 12 that Paul tells us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. But what does that look like? Well, Paul tries it, ties it to not being conformed to the world. See, the world is constantly pressing in. The world wants you to believe lies. So how do you actually resist that? Paul says you're transformed by the renewal of your mind. You're able to discern the will of the Lord through the word of the Lord. David says put your trust in the Lord. Don't put your trust in the world. Don't put your trust in your money, your intelligence, your gifts. Don't put your trust in yourself. Put your trust in the Lord. When trouble comes, how do you respond? You put your trust in the Lord. David then turns to another group in verse 6. Look again at the text. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Trouble has come. And this group of people is trying to find a way out. So they say, who will show us some good? One commentator says that this phrase points to the people longing for better times. They're feeling nostalgic. But rather than holding that thought, David again points to God. Look at the end of verse 6. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. The people David is addressing, they long for better times. But David longs for the Lord. He longs for a God who is faithful. He tells us to remember who God is. And he's showing us how to respond in the midst of trouble. But it's pretty easy for nostalgia to pop up. And nostalgia can be very dangerous. Nostalgia can also be pretty deceptive. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman notes that his book is written 
not as a lament for some lost golden age. Truman, I think, correctly notes that in many Christian circles, lament or nostalgia for some other time period abounds and dominates. Listen to what he says. As for the notion of some lost golden age, it is truly very hard for any competent historian to be nostalgic. What past times were better than the present? An era before antibiotics when childbirth or even minor cuts might lead to infection and death? Or is it the great days of the 19th century when the church was culturally powerful and marriage was between one man and one woman for life, but little children worked in factories and swept chimneys? Perhaps the Great Depression, the Second World War, the era of Vietnam. Every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. Do you ever get caught up longing for some other time in your life? Do you ever get caught actually longing to to be in a different era? Maybe even something simple like an era before cell phones existed, which would be really nice. It's not wrong to miss certain things. It's not wrong to have fond memories. But that can't overly affect the way that we live now. Did you hear the end of that quote from Truman? The Christian's task is not to whine about our cultural moment. And y'all, in many ways, we have perfected whining. That's not our job. Our task is to understand the problems of the world and appropriately respond to them. And at the same time, we can't make a mistake on the other side of things. We're not to just whine and do nothing, but we also can't believe the lie that we can fix everything ourselves. And we could easily start thinking we can, especially if you read or watch any news outlet. You can easily think, if we just get this party into power, everything will be better. If we just make these changes, we can control the world. But see, David understands what we control. What do we control? Nothing. People are longing for better times. David longs for the Lord. Does it mean that we quit working to improve the world right now? No. Does it mean that we don't care about political policies that align with Scripture, that protect life and enable people to flourish? No. But it means that we don't rest in those things. We don't trust in those things. David says, offer right sacrifices. Yes, he's pointing to actions. Our actions matter. But what does he finish with verse 5 with? Put your trust in the Lord. Solomon puts it this way in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Remember who God is. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. He's sovereign. He's in control. Third and finally, David shows us how to rest in times of trouble. All of this trouble is swirling around in the world. It's swirling around in David's world, and it's swirling around in our world, and it feels chaotic. It feels out of control. So how do you rest? 
Or who or what do you rest in? Look at verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Where does your joy come from? Does it come from your things? Does it come from reaching a certain level of safety and comfort? What David does in verse 7 is he sets up a contrast between inward and outward joy. See, outward joy comes when your grain and wine abound. It comes when the stock market is rolling, when gas prices are low, when inflation is level. It comes when there are not record murders in your city. It comes when the water in your city is safe to drink. It comes when you have a clean bill of health. Outward joy is tied to our circumstances. If our circumstances change, then our joy goes away. But inward joy, it sits in stark contrast to outward joy. Where does inward joy come from? It comes only from God. It comes from resting in the life, death, and resurrection of the Savior who can give you eternal life that nothing in this world can touch. David says, you, you, O Lord, have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Trouble is all around. The people are longing for better times, but David is praying, why? Because he knows that God is the only one who can give real, lasting joy. He knows in the midst of our worst circumstances that we can be joyful because our hope of eternity is sure. He knows that in spite of all of his own sin, and we get clear evidence of David's sin, we get evidence of adultery and murder, but in spite of all of David's sin, He rests in the promised Messiah who will cleanse him of all his sin. And David knows he can't do that. When Absalom, his son, stops trying to kill him, David's sin still remains. When the best harvest comes in, David's sin is still there. When David has defeated all his enemies, he still sins. He's only cleansed by the blood of Christ. He only finds lasting joy in the promised Messiah. Look at what this leads to in verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. How do you rest? How does David sleep when all of this trouble is surrounding him? Who enables him to rest? The Lord, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Nothing else, no one else. Your job does not enable you to rest. Your spouse does not enable you to rest. Having a spouse does not enable you to rest. Your children and their well-being does not enable you to rest. David says, the Lord, Lord, you alone, you alone make me dwell in safety. You alone give me rest. David exhorts us to remember who God is. If you know me well, then you know that I struggle to sleep. And if you don't know me well, I struggle to sleep. That's probably the most consistent difficulty in my life. I don't sleep well. I haven't slept well since high school. So a little bit over 20 years. 
I struggle to fall asleep. I struggle to stay asleep. I've been to counselors, to doctors. I've done acupuncture. Nothing's worked consistently. Psalm 4 is a psalm that I return to many nights. Now, my lack of sleep is likely tied to a lot of things. It's likely tied to my anxiety, to fear, to whatever's happening in my life, in the world, even my own natural rhythms. And it would be possible for me to read Psalm 4 and to find it absolutely maddening. And that's happened sometimes. Because David says, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. Sleep. It hasn't come to me regularly for over 20 years. Now, it's possible that that lack of sleep at times is tied to my own sin, even my own unbelief. But the beauty of this psalm is that it doesn't specifically dwell on sleep. That's not the focus of the psalm. Where is the focus? Where is David drawing our attention? Listen to where he's drawing our attention from the text. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Put your trust in the Lord. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Remember who God is. Remember what he's accomplished in Christ. Brother, sister, you can't save yourself. You can't give yourself rest. On the cross, Jesus says it is finished. And at the end of Revelation, he says, Surely I am coming soon. It's finished. He's coming soon. One of my favorite songs is a song that the songwriter wrote for one of his friend's ordination services. And he's writing about Christ's return. I want you to listen to what he says. When the bridegroom, that is Christ, when the bridegroom comes, there will be noise. There will be glad. And a perfect bed. A perfect bed. Perfect rest. Do you know that if you are in Christ, That rest is already yours in a very real way. You'll experience it more deeply, perfectly, when Christ actually returns. But the rest is already yours. Nothing in this world can take that away. Nothing can put God's promises on shaky ground. You rest on a firm foundation. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you need to know that you stand on incredibly shaky ground. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get yourself right to receive the rest promised in Christ. All you have to do is what Jesus began his public ministry with. Repent and believe. Repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and believe and rest in Christ alone for your salvation. That's really good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you in prayer, David reminds us that we are to remember who you are, that you are faithful, that you are gracious, that you are merciful. 
that you are our righteousness, that you are the one who justifies. Father, in the midst of difficulty and suffering in the world, that is hard for us to remember. We ask for your help. By your Spirit, direct us to your Word and direct us to the faithfulness of your promises in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.